Welcome back to another episode of What's Up Prof. Hello, Walter. Hello, Martin. <laughs> How are you doing? Same as yesterday. And I hope again that that was good. Well, let's say it was hectic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still going hectic. Yes, it's yeah. always hectic. That's why we need Lord so much. You know, I was thinking we, at episode 59, if the people, if the viewers can just understand that everything is 100% the Holy Spirit and God. Because it's impossible to do what we do and how it comes together, nobody can say. And sometimes we are almost at the point of despair and sometimes we say, no, we're not going to do that. And we always end up doing, doing it. it. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with me? I don't know why we always put our foot in it. Yeah. And uh, That's why we want to give all the glory to God. N nothing can come from us. We're just vehicles. Absolutely. We're nothing. God let's is very good to us. Let's thank you. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for using us. And thank you so much for everything that you do for us. We ask again, please help us through this most important discussion. Enlighten our minds and bless us and bless the viewers. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Martin, I have always tried to avoid this issue because it is such a controversial issue and the opinions are so strong out there that uh, any deviation from what one group thinks or the other group thinks puts you in the firing line. And uh, it is an interesting fact in the world that the issue that we're going to talk about today has caused more blood to flow than probably any other. Mm. Millions and millions have died in conflicts about things that we are going to talk about. Now, God never intended it like that mm. because God is a God of love and a God of mercy, but the devil intends it Yeah, Correct. because he's at war with God. Yeah. So the topic we are going to talk about is the doctrine of the law predestination and Christian perfection. And not only is this a topic that has been debated extensively in the course of history, this is a topic that is hotly debated in every denomination. Mm -hmm. And that includes our own. Correct. And there are distinct parties that are absolutely at loggerheads yeah. regarding this issue. So this is nothing new. So sometimes one thinks, you know, maybe we should just sit on the fence and see <laughs> who says what and to whom mm. and how does this pan out. But sometimes it comes to the point where you can no longer do that because the issue becomes public. You say one little word somewhere and people misconstrue it 
if you take the side of uh, grace and grace alone, mm -hmm. then you are branded as a person that says, uh, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Yes. If you take the side of, no, you have to do what is right, you are branded as a legalist, mm -hmm. and never the twain shall meet. And so, right from the start, let us ask or let us request that we give each other space. Not everybody is going to see this in the same way. Mm. And not everybody is going to be happy to compromise on a point of view or to, let's not use the word compromise, it's probably not a good word, mm. Let us say, allow for someone else to have another opinion. Many people, this issue is so black or so white that there cannot be a shade of gray. And uh, I would like to appeal to everyone to give each other space. And if someone sees it differently, then where are our points of contact? Now, this is not something that can be an ecumenical discussion mm -mm. No. where you must reach a compromise. Truth must never be compromised. But there were differences of opinion amongst the early disciples, and so there will be differences of opinion at the end of time as well. But we must learn to tolerate another's position if it does not go against the direct, explicit word of God. Mm. So, let's talk about the doctrine of the law, predestination, and Christian perfection. And uh, let's do it very prayerfully. Yes. In the Bible it says we have to be of one accord. Correct. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to be exactly the same. No, you don't have to see it exactly the same. In fact, there were very heated debates in the early church and uh, separations even on that basis. But uh, we must be of one accord and one mission. Yes. And we mustn't end up being at war with each other because we have a commission to spread the gospel. We don't have a commission to tear each other to shreds. Mm. Let's look at this very important situation and ask for a little bit of patience by everyone yes. and uh, serious contemplation. And if my view or our view that we express is not exactly the same as your view, then uh, let us give each other space because nobody is trying to develop an apostate doctrine. Mm. We are all just trying to understand the issue from the roots upwards. Correct. Yes. And for that, we need the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we need it because we know that there's a war in this world mm -hmm. regarding this issue. Yes. 1 John 3 verse 4 says, Whoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That is the basis for the doctrine of sin. 
Now, we read here in the book Faith and Works. Now we want to understand what sin is. It is what? That it is the transgression of God's law. This is the only definition given in the scriptures. Let me just stop there. Mm. There are many apparent definitions of sin in the Bible. If you do not believe in Christ, that is determined to be sin. Of sin, because they believe not in me, right? Correct. But if you boil it down yeah. to the very basis, you will always find that it comes back to the law. To the law, correct. So the yeah. only definition that we really have in the scripture is that sin is the transgression of the law. As we discussed in a previous one, some people say sin is separation from God. Mm -hmm. But we read very distinctly in that one in the book of Isaiah, no, your sin has separated yes. you from your God. So what is sin? It is the transgression of the law. Therefore we see that those who claim to be led of God and go right away from him and his law do not search the scriptures. But the Lord will lead his people, for he says that his sheep will follow if they hear his voice. But a stranger will they not follow. Then it becomes us to thoroughly understand the scriptures. And we will not have to inquire whether others have the truth, for it will be seen in their characters. So obviously, this truth must have an outworking in attitude, right? Yes. It must be apparent in the character. Correct. You must live it out. Exactly. All right, so that's the basis, and it's a biblical basis. That is the definition. Now, three times in the King James Version, we find this little sentence, sin no more. And uh, the first one we find in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, and here it refers to sin as a noun. Mm -hmm. And this is something that God will do concerning this issue called sin, which is? Transgression of the law. Okay. Yes. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God is going to remove this burden of sin under certain conditions. Correct. Correct. And he's going to do it. And he's going to do it. It is his work. This is the basis of the plan of salvation. Now, this, this sentence, sin no more, we also find it in the New Testament, not as a noun, but as a verb, as something to do. Yes. So here Jesus healed this individual, and afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Here is an instruction. 
And the instruction to this individual who was physically healed is sin no more. In John 8 verse 11, we have the woman that was caught in adultery and the accusers left after Jesus had written in the sand and she said to his question, where are your accusers? Mm -hmm. She says, no man, Lord. There's nobody here to accuse me anymore. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. And then comes the injunction, go and sin no more. Now when you analyze that verse, you will find that in this verse we have both the elements of justification and sanctification. Yeah. All right? Neither do I condemn thee, mm -hmm. that's forgiveness, yes, grace, and justification. Mm -hmm. Go and sin no more, that's sanctification. Yes. Now, is this a request or is this an instruction? It's an instruction. Are you sure? Yes. So, if you know what the definition of sin is, mm -hmm. then rephrase this for me. Then go and keep the whole of the law. That's exactly what he says, right? Then keep the law. Okay. Now, if Jesus gives an instruction, keep the law, uh, is it then, according to the instruction, possible to carry it out? Yes. Should be, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we have so many religions in the world that say nobody can keep the law. Yes. But this is at loggerheads with the instruction, go and sin no more, right? Mm -hmm. We have so many people that say that uh, because it's impossible to keep the law, God actually got rid of the law. Correct. And that is a huge chunk of Christianity that teaches that, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And the statements that we've just made, a lot of people will now say, there you go again, now you're legalists. But, let's but we're just reading the scripture. We're just reading the scripture. That's what uh, have to be kept in mind. And we must study the scripture mm -hmm. because this is the very basis of the plan of salvation. This is the important issue. So the question I have is how would they be enabled to go and sin no more? And that is where it comes now in. Before you accuse somebody of being a legalist for quoting that verse, study it through this. Exactly. So how does it work? Now here's a statement in the great controversy. Satan assailed Christ with his fiercest and most subtle temptations, but he was repulsed in every conflict. Those battles were fought in our behalf. Those victories make it possible for us to conquer. Christ will give strength to all who seek it. So how are you enabled? Through Christ. Christ will give strength to all who seek it. Is there something that you must do? You must seek him. You must seek it. No man without his own consent can be overcome by Satan. The tempter has no power to control the will. So does the will play an important part? Yes. Yes. Or to force the soul to sin. He may distress, but he cannot contaminate. He can cause agony, but not defilement. 
The fact that Christ has conquered should inspire his followers with courage to fight manfully the battle against sin and Satan. Now, if we go to 1 John 2 verse 4, he says, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So when Jesus said, go and sin no more, he was not instructing an impossibility. Mm -hmm. In fact, he goes so far here through the disciple John to say that if you do not follow the instruction, you're actually a liar mm -hmm. if you say that you know Jesus. This is scripture. The scripture. We're not making this up, right? And already we are in trouble. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so no matter what we do on this issue, we're going to be in trouble, right? Yes. But this is what the scriptures teach. The scripture is very clear on what sin is. And Jesus is very clear that you must break with sin. Mm -hmm. And the scripture is very clear that if you do not follow this, then you are lying when you say you're a Christian. Yes. Here's another quote from the great controversy. Let none deceive themselves with the belief that they can become holy while willfully violating one of God's requirements. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. So what separates? Willful sin. Willful sin. Did Adam and Eve commit a willful sin? Yes. Yes. They did. Were, they there, were there consequences? Yes. They were separated, right? Yeah. So were they first separated and then committed the sin or first committed the sin and then separated? First committed. Okay. Sin is the transgression of the law and whoever sinneth transgresses the law has not seen him, neither known him. Quoting 1 John 3 verse 6. Mm. Though John in his epistles dwells so fully upon the love, yet he does not hesitate to reveal the true character of that class who claim to be sanctified while living in the transgression of the law of God. He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily the love of God is perfected. 1 John 2, verse 4 and 5. Here is the test of every man's profession. We cannot accord holiness to any man without bringing him to the measurement of God's only standard of holiness in heaven and in earth. If men feel no weight of the moral law, if they belittle and make light of God's precepts, if they break one of the least of these commandments and teach men so, they shall be of no esteem in the sight of heaven, and we may know that their claims are without foundation. Now, that's not an arbitrary statement. Mm -hmm. That's a quote from the scriptures. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish yes. the law. Not one jot or one tittle will by mm -hmm. no means disappear from the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. So this is very scriptural so far. So we cannot negate the basis and the foundation which is being laid here in the scriptures regarding the law of God. Here's another quote from the Review and Herald. Only by accepting the virtue and grace of Christ can the law be kept. That's a very important yes. statement. They, now, this is now touching on 
the crux of the matter. And here is the difference between legalism and faith. Correct. As soon as you're saying, well, I've, I've got it, I've mm -hmm. got it all together, that's legalism. But when you are totally dependent on the virtue and grace of Christ, mm -hmm. then you are operating on the basis of faith. Yes. So belief in the propitiation for sin, that means the price that was paid mm -hmm. at the cross, enables fallen man to love God with his whole heart and his neighbor as himself. So there you have the classic example in the Bible of the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee said, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy over there. Lord, I do this, I do that, I pay tithe and mm -hmm. do everything that is required and I'm such a good citizen. And the other one says, Lord, I am a sinner. Which one went home justified? Yeah. This publican. The publican went on Who justified. acknowledged that he's a sinner. So this one was pushing out his chest and had there been any buttons on them, they would have popped off. Mm -hmm. And the other one beat his chest into a pulp. <laughs> yeah. So this one was the one that was justified. So this tells us that uh, even though there is this command, go and sin no more, it is enabled yes. by the power of Christ. Christ. I was just looking at that quote again. It enables fallen man to love God with his whole heart and his neighbor as himself. On uh, this two commands, on this hangs the whole of the law. Correct. You must love God and you must love your neighbor. So actually that can also say, enables fallen man to love God and keep his law. Yes. Galatians chapter 3 verse 2 tells us, This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. Mm. Obviously he didn't receive it by the works of the law, mm. but by faith. Verse 22 says, But the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So it is always by faith. Correct. And Romans 14 verse 23 puts it very succinctly, and whatever is not of faith is sin. So there's another definition of sin. In other words, what he's saying here, if we redefine it, whatever is not of faith is transgression of the law. Around 100%. <laughs> so that's what it says, right? Yes. Okay. So this should tell you already from the start that we have nothing to boast about. And any form of legalism is an affront to God. Mm -hmm. So the only way to approach this is by acknowledgement. I am a sinner. Yes. Repentance. Mm -hmm. Acceptance of the sacrifice by faith. Yeah, taking responsibility. And then giving God permission mm. to change you. Correct. And that is an act of the will, and it is your personal choice. Now, this is a very important issue. 
can God tell you to keep the law if you are not capable of keeping the law? No. Then it's a futile instruction, no. right? Yeah. And this debate mm-hmm. has been raging in the Christian world ever since its inception. Exactly. Well, it can probably come from Adam and Eve. Yes. Now, Martin Luther in the Reformation, having come out of a church that was so works-driven, came to a conclusion that we are justified by faith alone. And uh, this, is, this is the central part of the religious system as he explains it. So Martin Luther, of his article, Justification by Faith Alone, says, nothing can be yielded or surrendered. Nothing. Nor can anything be granted or permitted contrary to the same. This is the first and the chief article. This is his article on the issue. Then he states, if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. This doctrine, justification, is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Now, justification by faith alone. So it's something that I can grab hold of only through faith. There's nothing I can do to attain it. And justification is a legal term. It has the word justice Mm. in it. So if you are justified, then there is a justice that is imputed. But as Martin Luther explained, it is an alien Mm -hmm. justification. It's not your justice. Mm -hmm. It comes from God. So you are justified by Christ. It doesn't become yours. It is always His that is imputed to you. And you obtain it by faith. And it is a legal concept. It's not something you can work towards. No. It either exists or it does not exist. Now, the other side of the coin is the epistle of James. And Luther, in the beginning when he discovered the doctrine of justification, was so overwhelmed by this immense load that fell from his shoulders. Because his church taught Justification by works. Yes, the poor man had whipped himself into a frazzle Mm. and had lain for hours trying to get rid of the burden of guilt. And then he realized, but he'll never do it. And then he discovered that the justice of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ can be imputed to him as if it were his own. (sighs) It was such a relief. And then when he read James, he started to sweat again. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because James in verse 17 of chapter 2 says, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So in other words, what James is saying is you start off with faith. Mm-hmm. But faith has a consequence. Yes. And that consequence is works. Yes. Now, Martin Luther struggled with this because he was so enthusiastic about justification uh, that he called James the epistle of straw. But he still included it in his Mm. Bible translation, but he was muttering and grumbling about it. And then there's this interesting story in history where his biographer wrote the following. Luther's great biographer, Roland Bainton, pointed out, once Luther remarked, that he would give his doctor's beret to anyone who could reconcile James and Paul. Because Paul said, you are justified by faith alone and not by works. Mm -hmm. Yet he did not venture to reject James from the canon of Scripture and on occasion earned his own beret by effecting reconciliation. Faith, he wrote, is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative, for we are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. All right. So that's what he stated. He reconciled them. But there were still some things that were lacking Mm -hmm. in his thinking in terms of the issue of faith and work. And you know, the Roman Catholic Church has made it appear that they were for works and the Protestants were for uh, faith and justification by faith. But actually, you know, let's put them together and we'll be fine. We'll come together again. But that's not true. And I've given many, many lectures Mm -hmm. on this because they don't believe in the atonement. Correct. They don't believe Jesus died for you. They don't believe that he died for you. He died and he set an example, but he didn't die for you. But our faith must be in the blood, in the atonement. So this is a very, very complex issue and the world is still arguing about it to this day. Now, Calvin believed in predestination. Mm. In other words, God is the author of everything. Mm -hmm. And God predetermines everything. And everything is in the will of God. So God predetermined that there would be a fall. Yeah. And he predetermined who will be saved. And who who will will be lost. lost. Now, you get various grades within Calvinism where some will say, that God created Adam to fall. Mm. Others won't go quite that far. But the idea is God is sovereign. You are what you are. And you are basically lost. But God can predestine you to be saved. And there's really nothing that you can do. Nothing. Yeah. So you don't have free will. 
There is no free will. It doesn't exist. No, I just wanted to clarify that is what Calvin said. That's what Calvin said, yeah. yes. So here you have an interesting cartoon where you have Martin Luther and Calvin and both of them are pulling the ears of the papacy. So they had a common enemy. Yes. They agreed on who the Antichrist was and where the problem was. Mm -hmm. But Martin Luther is pulling the beard of Calvin here. He doesn't agree with Calvin. So this issue has been there from the beginning, and they are at loggerheads with one another. But they do rely on the scriptures. And this again tells us that you must read the scriptures very carefully. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you could take one position and the other one take the other position and never the twain shall meet. Twain, and there's, a, there's a middle path of where they are reconciling, but everybody is Correct. on the side tracks. Exactly. Did Martin Luther reconcile with the book of James? Yes. Yes, he did. But he still had this concept that humanity was basically not totally capable of doing anything in total depravity. Now, if we go back in history and find out where this all comes from, we have to go back to the early church. Now, here's a a prescribed book in many universities in the world today. It's the story of Christian theology, 20 centuries of tradition and reform, and it's by Roger Olson. Now, in the story of Christian theology, 20 centuries of tradition and reform by Roger Olson, we read the interesting facts that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who were church fathers of the Roman Catholic Church, were steeped in Greek philosophy concerning their doctrine of God. And their influence has been far-reaching in Christianity as a whole. The doctrine of predestination as espoused by Calvin was largely influenced by the philosophy of Augustine. Now, let me just stop there. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, Mm -hmm. so he was also very steeped in the doctrine of Augustine. So this impressed their minds. There are many, many issues that pertain to Augustine that are still held by Protestants and Catholics in the world today. Just for example, amillennianism. It's part of the Catholic doctrine and it's part of the Lutheran doctrine. So if we go further, in the doctrine of Augustine, freedom not to sin does not exist. Since he believed in unconditional election and irresistible grace. grace. Now all of these are alive and well and and living in different factions of Christianity today. There are many that say we're not capable of keeping the law of God. We have no freedom not to sin. We are sinners and thank God. God is the God of love and grace. And so we will just continue with our activities as before and God will take care of it. Mm. Hmm? Are there many like that? Yes. Have you been through some of those, Martin? Yes. God knows my heart, so don't judge me. Okay. 
And then he believed in unconditional election. That is saying that you don't have a choice. If God selected you, you won't be able to not go to heaven. That's Calvinism today. That's a very large faction. And even within denominations, uh, there are different groupings in certain denominations that believe one side or the other side or compromise between the two. Mm. gets very complicated. I have a lecture series which is called Conflict and Triumph. And if people want more information, then they can look at that series. Correct. And then the, the, the concept of irresistible grace. Now, these three have caused major consternation in the world today. And it's been progressive. So where does Augustine and Thomas Aquinas come upon their, their way of thinking, right? Well, we read in the Great Controversy, this compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin, foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalted himself above God. That gigantic system of false religion is a masterpiece of Satan's power, a monument of his efforts to seat himself upon the throne to rule the earth according to his will. Roman Catholicism is so broad that it is capable of absorbing all of these philosophies. Mm. So they can say that we can absorb you if you want to be saved in your sin, and we can absorb you if you want to be saved by your works. Yes. But if you want to be saved from your sin, mm -hmm. then you have a problem with that system. Now the paganism that was absorbed is of course Greek philosophy. And the immortality of the soul yeah. played a massive role in that. And if you are immortal, well then the wages of sin are not death. No. So the whole doctrine of sin falls apart Correct. when you come to the doctrine of immortality. Yeah. So modern, if you, if you look at this gigantic system of false religion, the Bible depicts it as this beast, this conglomerate beast, this chimera. <laughs> and the bulk of the body is a leopard. So the bulk of the philosophy is Greek philosophy. Yes. Roman Catholicism, both in the doctrines of Augustine and in the doctrines of Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas are Greek philosophy. The system upon which they base their system is, of course, the feet of the bear. That's Medo-Persian philosophy. And then it has the mouth of the lion. The way in which it presents its religion to the people is through Babylonian religion. Correct. Baal worship. Baal worship. And the Medo-Persians, that's Mitra. That's Mitraism. Yeah. That's sun worship. And that you showed in your uh, Nahum presentation. Correct. Now, the horns, of course, are Roman. So this gives it its power and great authority. So this authoritative beast is a masterpiece. 
It's a conglomerate that can absorb any false religion in the entire world. I, yeah, even paganism. So it can, it's any religion. What is this to. new world religion that they're working to get for? Well, it can fit into that system. Any religion can fit into that system, except one. If you want to be saved from yeah. your sins. So now this doctrine of predestination, they use the verses in Romans. For whom he also did foreknow, it says in Romans 8 from verse 29, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So now here they're using the foreknowledge of God mm -hmm. as a decree that you are being predestined yes. to either go to hell or to go to heaven. If you have been predestinated for damnation, then that is your right deserved because you're a sinner. Mm. If you are predestinated to go to heaven, then that is the irresistible grace that God gives you. You will conform to him whether you are... You like it or not. If You've got, you got no choice. You have no choice because you have no free will. You cannot choose not to sin. So therefore, this is all God's working. So basically you can say, sit back, relax, be happy, and see which side the chips fall. And this debate was raging, the Armenian debate in, in the Calvinistic circles, the separation of, of uh, this thinking pattern. It's all in that series, Conflict and Triumph, Conflict. that uh, we spoke about earlier. Now I'm going to skip all that, and we'll just jump to what uh, Wesley had to say on the issue. Mm. Because once this had gone all the way, and the various denominations in the world yeah. had settled on the question, some for this position, some for that position, Wesley came and he stirred the pot again. Now, this is on predestination by John Wesley, and I think we should read it because he has such amazing thoughts. He said, As all time, with everything that exists therein, is present with him at once, so he sees at once. This is talking about God. Whatever was, is, or will be to the end of time. But observe, we must not think they are because he knows them. No, he knows them because they are. Now he's referring to predestination. Mm. So just because he knows what your choices will be doesn't mean that he actually made your choice for you. No. This is what he's saying. Just as I, if one may be allowed to compare the things of men with the deep things of God, now know the sun shines, yet the sun does not shine because I know it, but I know it because he shines. My knowledge supposes the sun to shine, but does not in any wise cause it. In like manner, God knows 
that man sins, for he knows all things. Yet we do not sin because he knows it. Correct. Would that you agree is, with that? That's very important. But he knows it because we sin. And his knowledge supposes our sin, but does not in any wise cause it. In a word, God looking on all ages from the creation to the consummation as a moment and seeing at once whatever is in the hearts of the children of men knows everyone that does or does not believe in every age or nation. Yet what he knows, whether faith or unbelief, is in no wise caused by his knowledge. Men are as free in believing or not believing as if he did not know it at all. All right, so he's making an argument. Yeah. And he's saying predestination is diabolical. In fact, he goes so far as to say it makes God worse than the devil because then he becomes not only the author of evil, but he will condemn you to eternal suffering even though you had no choice in the matter. Yeah. Right? So he actually created you to die. He created to you to die and suffer eternally. And suffer, yeah. Or created you to experience eternal bliss. Purely based upon his choice and not yours. But Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's your choice. And in the book of Ezekiel, it says if the wicked man turns from his wickedness, none of his former wickedness will be remembered. He will be I declared see. righteous, yeah. right? And if the righteous man turns from his righteousness, none of his former righteousness will be remembered. He will certainly die. So uh, Joshua says, choose thee this day exactly. whom you will serve. Mm. So these are so many things that are confusing. He continues to say, Indeed, if man were not free, he could not be accountable either for his thoughts, word, or actions. If he were not free, he would not be capable either of reward or punishment. He would be incapable either of virtue or vice, of being either morally good or bad. If he had no more freedom than the sun, the moon, or the stars, he would be no more accountable than them. On supposition that he had no more freedom than them, the stones of the earth would be as capable of reward as liable to punishment as man. One would be as accountable as the other, yea, and it would be as absurd to ascribe either virtue or vice to him as to ascribe it to the stock of a tree. Martin, do you agree with that? Yes. It's logic, right? Yeah. So if you don't have a choi choice in the matter and the table doesn't have a choice in the matter, you're on the same ground. Absolutely. All right. So we can concur with the thinking of Wesley, right? And in fact, Seventh-day Adventism, when it comes to this doctrine, is basically on the same page as the Methodists are. But to proceed, whom he did foreknow, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son. He's quoting scripture. This is the second step 
to speak after the manner of men, for in fact there is nothing before or after in God. In other words, God decrees from everlasting to everlasting that all who believe in the Son of His love shall be conformed to His image, shall be saved from all inward and outward sin into all inward and outward holiness. Accordingly, it is a plain, undeniable fact all who truly believe in the name of the Son of God do now receive the end of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And this in virtue of the unchangeable, irreversible, irresistible decree of God. He that believeth shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. Now if you just stop there, you would again run into the debate, do we have to now keep the law or not? But if you take it to its logical consequence, you would have to agree that if you make the choice, mm -hmm. then you must come into harmony with God's will again, right? Yes. So what did Wesley believe on this issue and what does his church believe? Let's just go there. The Methodist belief regarding the law. This handwriting of ordinances, our Lord did blot out take away and nail it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. But the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets, he did not take away. So in other words, they believe that the law spoken about in Colossians that was nailed to the cross was the ceremonial law. Mm -hmm but it in no way affected the moral law of Ten Commandments. So they claim that the moral law stands on an entirely different foundation from the ceremonial or ritual law. Every part of this law must remain in force upon all mankind and in all ages. So this is what John Wesley said. Therefore the law stands. Mm -hmm. Now under Calvinism, it's very easy to say the law does not stand because, because you're I'm predestined, yeah. right? I've so we have factions in Calvinism that say the law stands. And in fact, they read the law every Sunday from the pulpit. But there are many subgroups that have developed out of them that say the law is gone. We don't have to keep the law. And then there are subgroups that say keeping the law is a sin. That's a total reversal, right? Yeah, that's sounding like the devil, um, his argument. It sounds like his argument yeah. because the Bible clearly says sin is transgression yeah. of the law and they're saying keeping the law is sin. Is sin. That's that doesn't make any mm. sense. In fact, they go this far and say no Christian whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Now, if that is the case, one wonders why they stop at nine. <laughs> but let's not, not go there. Now, if we want to understand this doctrine of the basis of sin, and we're, we're heading towards Christian perfection, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a real bone of contention. Then, only in the light of the sanctuary can the doctrine of salvation be understood. And that is why the sanctuary message mm. is of such paramount importance. 
And it seems to me that most of Christianity has just lost sight of it. They don't know what, what it's about because most of Christianity sees it it's in the Old Testament, so it's not applicable. But Jesus said quite plainly, whatever is written in the Old Testament testifies of him. Of him. So this is something that we need to study. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it's all about the sanctuary. sanctuary. And it is the application of the sanctuary message. Yes. And it talks about the high priest that has entered into the heavenly sanctuary, mm. not made by human hands, but one that was constructed by God. And therefore, it's important to understand the earthly ministry in order to understand the heavenly ministry, right? Correct. Now, what is the sanctuary all about? What happened in the Old Testament? Well, the whole message of the sanctuary was the solution to sin. Jesus Correct. Christ. Correct. Everything pointed in the whole Absolutely sanctuary. Absolutely everything. So when we Jesus. study this sanctuary message, then we are actually studying the plan of redemption. Yes. So let's read this statement in the Great Controversy. All who have received the light upon these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them the reason of the hope that is in them. Now, this sanctuary message is the plan of redemption, right? Mm -hmm. And it had to do with offerings for sin. Now, who became the great offering for sin for us? Jesus. Jesus Christ. And it had the priest involved. Now, who became our high priest? Jesus. And what did Hebrew, the book of Hebrews say? Where did that high priest enter? Into the holy and then into the most holy. Correct. So if you look at this sanctuary as we have it depicted over here, there was this wall of white linen around it. And the Bible tells us clearly that the white linen stands for the righteousness of Christ. Right? And there was this one door. And Jesus says, I am the door. And there were, you know, a certain number of pillars and everything, every detail is important. We're not going to do a no. lesson on the sanctuary. But the very first thing you come across is the altar of burnt offering. So when you entered into this door, which is Christ, you were immediately surrounded by this wall of white linen. That's the righteousness of Christ. And that's justification. That's justification, covered by his righteousness. So you accept Christ, you come to him, and the first thing you see is the altar which stands for the cross. Mm -hmm. And there the lamb was slain, which stands for Jesus Christ. And his blood was placed upon the horns of the altar. And the priest internalized a small portion 
after the sins had been transferred in type to the Lamb by confession. Mm. And the high priest bore the sin in type on behalf of the sinner. Isn't that incredible? Amazing. And then the next thing was the laver. Yeah. Now, when you accept the atoning sacrifice of Christ, when you realize you are saved by his blood, then comes the washing of rebirth. Mm -hmm. So you go through the process of baptism, baptism. you die mm -hmm. to the old man of self, and you rise up in a new life in Christ. And it is no longer you that lives, but Christ, Christ that lives you. in you, which basically means that your fallen attributes will be replaced by his yes. unfallen Good. attributes. And not because of any great effort on your part, but because of his imputation. What a beautiful doctrine. Mm -hmm. And then that priest who would take an offering for himself because he also was a sinful human being, but Christ was sinless. And he would take this offering, his blood, into the sanctuary just as much as the priest here took it into the sanctuary. And there he would place it on the horns of the altar so that the record of all confessed sins would be recorded there. Mm -hmm. And in this first compartment over here, there were the candlestick, yes. the altar of incense, and the table of showbread, showbread, right? And they represent Christ, the light of the world. Mm -hmm. And my word is a lamp, lamp unto your feet. Yes. And you have to internalize this. He was the great mediator making your prayers acceptable yeah. to God reinstating the communication that smoke that went up yeah. his righteousness going mingled with yeah. the prayers of the saints and then the body this is my body that was given for you internalize yeah. it internalize my character the it's bread of life it's called sanctification in other words by the light of the word communicate with me Go and sin no more and learn what it means to internalize my character so that the world can see the difference. That's what happens there. And then the most holy, mm -hmm. where you had the Ark of the Covenant. Why is it called most holy? Because there's the basis of his government, the law. And above it was the mercy seat. Yes. And Which that was his throne. Again represents Christ. And, and mercy seat. Yeah. In other words, he shields you from the condemnation of the law. He took it upon himself. It is so beautiful. <laughs> and it's amazing. Uh, we don't have time to go into all the details, but there is the plan of salvation. Mm -hmm. You leave out any of those components, you are stuck on a quarter or halfway road. So many want to come in and want to be justified by Christ. But what does it mean to repent and forsake your sins? What does it mean to be washed by the washing of rebirth? What does it mean to be sanctified by a close walk with Jesus Christ? What does it mean? You have to study it. 
And then all the sacrifices that were brought, and there were sin offerings, and there were mm. other offerings, and and uh, it is it is a beautiful system. And where it culminates by the ark with the law, just shows you the law wasn't taken away. No, it's put into the most, in the most holy. holy. So Hebrews chapter two verse three says, "How shall we escape?" if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So the study of the plan of salvation is an important modern. Yes. We have to study very, it, very right? Very important. Is it possible to neglect so great salvation? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Is it possible to misunderstand so great a salvation? Yes, if I'm not willing to let self out of the way. All right. So now we get to a rather complicated issue. The issue of being without spot or wrinkle. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, we read, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So here he's using a type, the relationship in a marriage, mm -hmm. and he applies it to himself and the church, right? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Didn't we just see that in the sanctuary? Yes. The light, the candle. Mm -hmm. Thy word is a lamp, lamp unto my feet. And the washing of water, which symbolizes the, the cleansing from sin. Yes, the baptism that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, reading these verses, Martin, who's doing the cleansing? Jesus. Jesus, right? It's amazing. He is doing everything. He's doing everything. Even he is doing uh, the presenting to himself a glorious church. So he's working everything you have to let him. All right, so this church has to be without spot or wrinkle. It must have no blemish. Now he was the, the lamb without blemish, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, this church must reflect the righteousness of Christ. Christ. Now, this is where it gets tough. Yes. And this is where the debate has raged through the centuries and where the blood has flown in the streets. Nothing in this world is so dear to God as his church. With jealous care, he guards those who seek him. Nothing so offends God as for the servants of Satan to strive to rob his people of their rights. The Lord has not forsaken his people. Satan points to the mistakes that they have made and tries to make them believe that thus they have separated themselves from God. Evil angels seek in every way to discourage those who are striving for the victory over sin. They hold up before them their past unworthiness and represent their case as hopeless. Now, Martin, I've been a Christian for 
35 years. And I've seen so many young people that feel hopeless. Mm. Their case is hopeless. They've been some down some very dark alleys and they feel God cannot accept them. And Satan is there to accuse, right? Yes. He's there the whole time. And then we have so many that have a doctrine that you have to be without spot or blemish. And they look at themselves and they see only spots and blemishes. And they despair. Mm -hmm. Now, what does it mean to preach the gospel? Doesn't it mean to preach good news? Good news. Now, is it good news to realize mm. that you are so blemished that you don't have a hope? Yeah. No, that's not good news. Mm. That's bad news, right? Yes. So there's something twisted somewhere out there. And, we, and we've got to get it into the right perspective. perspective yes. So this is an issue that's going to cause some ripples. Because if you take one position... As I said before, you're a legalist. If you take another posi position, then you are in the category that says, I'm not capable of not sinning. Mm. But that makes Jesus a liar mm -hmm. and makes him a hard taskmaster who told you to go and sin no more and knowing full well that you are incapable of doing what he commanded, right? Correct. It's not logical. You have to remain within the realms of logic. Mm. So how do we deal, Martin, with these verses? Romans 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In other words, in my carnal nature, I'm not subject to the law of God. I'm a sinner. I'm a transgressor of the law. Yeah. And indeed, I cannot be subject to the law. In other words, what this verse is saying, I cannot keep it. Right? No. But he said, go and keep it. Yes. Or what do we do with Matthew 5 verse 48? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There's another misnomer. Now you must be perfect. And then you have 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here we have a dichotomy. We have the dichotomy of you have to be perfect as God himself, the Father, is perfect. Mm. But if you say that you are without sin, you're a liar. Yeah. You're deceiving yourself. Whenever you have two things that are diametrically opposed to each other in the scriptures mm -hmm. there must be something that makes them common ground right yes okay there's two things that we can look at mm -hmm. one is maybe perfection isn't the same as sinlessness being without sin that's a possibility right yes. and maybe to be perfect and yet not to be without sin can only be reconciled in Christ. Yes. So if Christ is perfect, as his Father in heaven is perfect, mm -hmm. and we know that he is, 
And if Christ has no sin, mm -hmm. then if he imputed to you that righteousness and God sees his righteousness rather than your state, yes. then would you be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Yes. In other words, your imperfection will have been filtered out by the perfection of Christ. Of Christ. And God will see you as perfect. Because he's actually looking at the righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you are without sin. All right. Let's look at it carefully. Two possibilities, or maybe both possibilities. So we have to be perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's a very high goal. Mm -hmm. And we may not say that we do not have sin. That is a present tense. Correct. Not a past tense. Not we had no sin. Correct. Because some people say, okay, but your sin has been forgiven, now you can be perfect. Mm. So it's present sin. You have no sin. That's very, very good point that you mentioned there, Martin. So let's look at these verses in a little bit more detail. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. It doesn't say do not have the truth. Mm -hmm. It means do, do. not the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin if you are cleansed of all sin then you are sinless right yes but he says i may not say that i have no sin because i'm a sinner mm -hmm. but by decree he yes. can declare me sinless right if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So obviously it's not in me to be sinless. It's only in him to be sinless, right? Mm -hmm. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is there something we must do? Yes. We must confess. Confess. And faith. You must have faith. Yes. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we are sinners. Sinners. There's nothing we can do about it. Correct. But uh, we can seek fellowship with him. Yes. So if we go to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that's our condition, right? Correct. Or Romans 5 verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We are all in the same boat. So modern, what we've discussed so far, in reality deals with moral depravity. Is humanity capable of making a choice or is it not capable of making a choice? That's the basis. Mm. If the doctrine of sin is based on the law and its veracity, that by the law is the knowledge of sin and sin 
is the transgression of the law, then if God requires us to sin no more, then we must be able to make that choice. Correct. Because there are many people in the world where you can obviously see that they haven't made that choice. Right? Yes. And there are many people that claim to have made that choice but don't actually live up to that choice. And uh, it's a very sad state of affairs in the world that even amongst the best of the clergy in the world, we regularly in the media mm. hear of the tremendous transgressions of the law that have taken place under the cloak yeah, yeah. Of, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So the Bible says, by their fruits you will know them. Know them. Mm. Now, many a preacher has preached wonderful sermons and maybe brought many to Christ. But when that preacher falls, he takes many away from Christ as well. Yeah. So the Bible constantly warns us, do not look at the man. Correct. Don't base your decision on the life of a person because we are fallible human beings. We could fall away tomorrow. Yeah. And history is replete with people that have fallen away. That doesn't change the fact that the basis of the law is go and sin no more. Oh, yeah. Isn't that correct? correct? Correct. So now we have to deal with the issue of moral perfection and it is an enormous task and it'll take a while to go through this so let's see what we can do so maybe it will be better to give us enough time to get in into it deep and do it justice to do it in the following episode okay so you're suggesting that we close with a word of prayer please okay Heavenly Father, we have just scratched the surface and there is so much more to say about this issue, particularly when it comes to moral perfection and the final generation. So help us in our deliberations. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for watching this video. To subscribe, click here. When the bell appears, Click again to get notifications. To watch the next video, click here. Thank you.